Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 273 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Uh, One of the things I love about being able to do what I do is I get to meet some fascinating people with incredible stories. And uh, I know we have a ton of young leaders listening, whether that's in the church world, the marketplace. And a lot of the times it's very easy early on, you know, to have like no idea where your life is going and no idea what's possible. And that's why I think you're going to love today's interview. I'm sitting down with Ron Kitchens He has a fascinating story. He grew up, as he'll share, with next to nothing. And he has gone on to found one of the greatest employers in the entire Midwest, Southwest Michigan First, an economic consulting firm, which just creates literally tens of thousands of jobs. He's the founder of the Leadership Conference Catalyst University, co-founder of Next. Ron and his team have been extensively featured uh, in places like the Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, CBS, NBC, Fox, USA Today, Forbes, Fortune, The Economist, and National Public Radio. He's an author, and his company has been recognized as one of the top five best places to work in America, as well as a national brightest and best company back in 2016. Uh, Ron's a fascinating guy. And uh, is a bit of a leadership guru himself, but he would have never known that when he was growing up. And uh, I just love stories where uh, your past doesn't define your future, let alone your present. And to see the things that God has done through him is just incredible. So I think you're going to love this interview today. And if you haven't subscribed yet, man, we have some great shows coming up. We've got Sam Collier back on the podcast Drew Dick, the uh, former editor of Christianity Today, Ian Morgan Cron is back, which I'm super excited about. Ron Edmondson catches us up on leadership now that he's the CEO of Leadership Network. Talking about succession with Lee Kreitcher and Jason Howard. Also have David Kinneman back on the podcast, Max Lucado. And who else is coming up this fall? Oh, we've waited a long time for this one. Gordon McDonald. Yeah, scheduled to do that interview in Boston this summer. I'm so excited for that. So if you haven't subscribed, do it for free. And uh, speaking of free, have you tried Trained Up for free for 14 days at their website yet, servehq.church? I'd love for you to try online training for your church. We've gone to it at Conexus Church, so have many others. It may not be the perfect fit for every ministry, but you know what? 95% of leaders who try online training with Trained Up see success and stick with it for the long term. So why is everybody moving to online training? Well, a few reasons. First of all, everybody in your church is familiar with learning online, especially people under 40. For example, you know, YouTube, 95% of Gen Z is on YouTube every day. Online learning is an incredible opportunity many leaders are missing. And by making some training available online, you give more people the chance to be fully equipped, as in 100% completion on your training courses. So rather than getting 40 to 60% of your volunteers or teams trained, you can get 100% trained. And getting new volunteers ready to serve is tough because onboarding happens over time, right? You pick up two new volunteers this week, 10 the next. When do you do training? Well, if it's online... You can do it anytime. And like I said, you can try it for free for 14 days with Serve HQ. And when you sign up, 
You'll be walked through a simple process to help you test out the platform, see how it will work in your ministry. Plus, their team is incredibly responsive. Live chat, customer support for every customer seven days a week, and they're happy to help you at no extra cost. So try Trained Up for free for 14 days at their website, servehq.church. You can try it for free for 14 days. And... If you listened last time, you heard me talk about the Orange Tour. We are so excited for that. I'm going to be in some cities this fall. So are Reggie Joyner, Kara Powell, John Acuff, and so many more. It's a one-day event with some super inspiring sessions designed for your entire team. And it's built around the theme of It's Personal. I'm pretty excited about this one because, you know, Reggie Joyner is probably the most relational guy I know. And we live in a highly digital age, but when you get into Orange Tour, you're going to see how important it is for people to rally together in person around the next generation. So at OT 2019, you're going to learn how to synchronize small group leaders, design events that work together to complement your strategy, develop a team that's aligned, rally volunteers, partner with other churches. You'll meet tons of leaders from your city and region. And you can also learn how to cue every parent and even grandparents to leave a lasting legacy of faith and character in their own kids. And it's an incredible price. And because you listen to this podcast, you can hit any one of the 15 cities by going to orangetour.org, orangetour.org. Use the code CARRY, C-A-R-E-Y, on checkout. You get $10 off the regular price. So that's like the super early bird price. So you're going to be doing great if you head on over today to orangetour.org and use the coupon code CARRY uh, and you'll get $10 off. And that's $10 for every person who registers. And I would highly encourage you to bring your team. I'm going to be, if you're wondering, in LA, like Irvine, and also in Phoenix, in Austin. So I'm looking forward to that this fall. So, hey, without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with CEO of Southwest Michigan First, Ron Kitchens. Ron, welcome to the podcast. It's so good to have you. Great to be here with you. It's uh, I, as you know, I'm both the big fan of of the podcast, and I think I've heard every episode. But I'm uh, we have some mutual friends who talk so strongly about your leadership and your how much you enrich them. So I'm so glad to be here. Well, it's uh, it's just great to meet you, and an honor to meet you. And I want to sort of start at the beginning. So you're very successful. We're going to talk about all that, all the stuff that God's done in your life as an entrepreneur, as a CEO and a community person, philanthropist, et cetera, et cetera. But you didn't grow up in an affluent, wealthy, or high-influence home. And you keep a can of mandarin oranges on your desk? Really? I do. I what is that? So, what is that? So, um, so neither of my parents um, finished the eighth grade. So they both dropped out of school. My father, too, because his father had died and he had to take his um, role in the family to support his mother and sister. My mother was kind of a precocious child. Um, they got married when my mom was 14 and my dad was 15. Are you my kidding me? No. Wow. And they uh, ran off to Mexico to get married because they couldn't get married. I was going to say, I don't they, even think that's legal. Yeah, was, I'm not sure it was legal in Mexico either, but they did it. So <laughs> I uh, so I was born a, a year later. My mom was 15 years older than I am. My father and I share the same um, trait that we're both um, dyslexic. Mine, I'm able to overcome. He never did. Um, he had to get his driver's license out to write his name down. And he had to take a dangerous job. And when I was four, he was killed 
in an industrial accident because the sign said, don't do this. And if you can't read the sign, it really doesn't matter that it's there. And so a few years after he died, a group of men from a church we didn't attend um, showed up at the holiday season with the Chiquita banana box. Um, and if you've seen the big, thick plastic, or big, thick cardboard waxy box I have. And, and knocked on the door. And, you know, at that point in my life, you never answered the door because it was either a bill collector or something bad was going to happen. And so my brother and I hid and watched them leave this box there. And we go to get the box and it's um, and it's a Christmas box. So it's got a turkey in it. It's got stuffing and and mashed potatoes, powdered mashed potatoes and other things in there. It's got a can of mandarin oranges. Well, in the Ozark Mountains in the 1970s, tropical fruit, whether it was fresh or canned, was something really special, and you saved it for a special occasion. And, you know, this Christmas, the house smelled like pinot beans because my mom had been cooking beans every day, so she had a little money to buy us Christmas presents. And it was a Christmas miracle for us. And that, so that can of manor and oranges went on a shelf to be saved for special. Well, if you're if you're poor, um, there's a hierarchy. When the bills come due and you've got to move because you can't pay the rent, you always take the food. And the the mm. clothes might get left, the books might get left, your shoes might get left, but you always take the food. So this can of mandarin orange went went from every house that we moved into, and it became this symbol for this little boy uh, that somebody loved me. Somebody out there cared. These men from this church that I didn't know loved us and cared about us. And so it really became, um, when I was scared, it was my safety blanket. And it would sit on that shelf and I would go look at it and know there was something better. So like all canned food will do, it, um, it began to swell and my mother threw it away. And I guess I had lamented long enough that she went and bought another can. I went to put it on the shelf, and she said, no, 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 I want you to put that on your desk. Well, I was the dorky little kid who knew that other kids had desks, so I had to have one. So mine was an old metal TV tray. Yeah, I remember those. Yeah, My grandmother used to have one. Uh, Yeah, yeah, TV dinner trays, yeah. I put my can, and she said, you go put that on your desk as a reminder of the price of lack of education. So there was a can on my desk. There's been a can honor in my desk for every desk I've had in college, in graduate school, every business desk I've ever had. I have three desks today. There's a can of oranges there that now go beyond education. And they're really to remind me of my responsibility to lead and take care of others. My wife and I have donated close to 100,000 cans of mandarin oranges to um, homeless banks, to church food pantries over the years as our reminder that there are little boys and girls out there every day that need to know that somebody cares about them. And, you know, we I've adopted the color orange, a specific color of orange for all of our leadership programming. So everything you see is orange because it reminds my whole team that we're here to serve. They all know that story. When you come to work for us your first week or so, you're going to find a can on your desk and they're going to get somebody's going to tell you go ask Ron about the can. 
and um, because we want people to know we have an obligation to serve and that to be a tangible reminder every day of the blessings those three men gave me and my responsibility to give it back. And you orient every new employee in your company around that can of oranges? Every employee is oriented around it. Everybody wears orange clothing for events or orange bracelets or orange lanyards, and they know why it's orange. Um, Because it's not our corporate colors, red, but for everything about leadership and serving people, we use the color orange. So I've read a lot of biographies in my life. And when I was preparing for this interview and I read your biography, it's it's a little hard to get out in a sentence. Can you just <laughs> give us, let alone a paragraph or a book? <laughs> I think I think your bio is basically a book. Can you just give yeah. us uh, a, a summary of what you have built, what you've started, what you've done? And because the path from where you started to where you are now is not, a typically traveled path. No, it's a, yeah, it's functionally dysfunctional, I guess, maybe. <laughs> the, uh, so I, you know, I grew up poor as not a tremendous um, student, like a lot of kids, a lot of young men. I thought sports was my key to college. Um, I go to play, I lucky enough, I was invited to play college football. The very first week of training, my knee gets blown out and it's all over. There's no scholarship. There's no anything. I uh, had a great mentor who came to me and said, let me tell you what your future is. Your future is you're going to go to college and you're going to drop out because you're going to have financial problems. You're going to need a flat tire. Something's going to happen. And so you're going to go to fewer and fewer hours. Um, Along the way, you're going to get a job. You're going to borrow money so you can um, get your car fixed so you can go to college. And a couple of years from now, you'll quit college, you'll have gotten some girl pregnant, and you'll eventually be the most popular guy on the assembly line at the fan uh, company on the outskirts of town. Wow. But we can change that. And so he came alongside of me, brought other um, business people alongside who agreed to mentor me. Um, the agreement was I, they, um, I bought a convenience store, and they said – You'll, you'll run this business. You have to attend college every semester that we support you and mentor you. And eventually you'll graduate and you're going to do great things. And um, long story short is it, it took me eight years to yeah. get, through, get through college doing that. But I got through college. I built a very successful business. But one day um, my banker said to me, I just paid off our 14th deal. And the bankers, I was bragging to the banker, not bragging, just talking about how many people I could hire and how excited I was. Because I grew up knowing the most important thing was a job. Everybody Mm. who had what I want had one thing in common. Everyone had a job. And that's all I really cared about. And he said, you know, all you care about is jobs. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, no, I didn't mean that as a compliment. He said, you're one of these days – Things are going to go bad, and you're going to lose your whole business, and everybody who works for you will lose their jobs. We have to find a different path for you. And so um, along the way, I had been frustrated in my hometown that nobody could come back after college. So I, at mm-hmm. age 20, I ran And your hometown was where? In Ozark, Missouri, in the Ozark Mountains. Yeah. And nobody could come back after college. And so I ran for city council at age 20. 
And I won um, three times by landslides because technically nobody ran against me, but it was a landslide <laughs> either way. And so I, I discovered that I, I, what business could do and what government could do um, to help create jobs. And so it started me down this path of then figuring out if we brought philanthropy in, we can both build businesses, serve my personal mission of, you know, growing organizations that build jobs um, using dollars of philanthropy. And so we've been able to do incredible things um, over the last 30 years around this idea that um, the greatest force for change that I can have is on helping people get and keep jobs, grow businesses, and then um, and build leaders who then go, can go do amazing things. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, in, in the friends who sort of introduced us when they were saying, oh, you got to get to know Ron, uh, it was like, yeah, he's the biggest job creator in Western Michigan, the state of Michigan, you know, <laughs> his region, his area. Yeah. And that's what your bio says. It's all yeah. about jobs. So explain the philosophy behind that. What I mean, obviously, there's a certain logic to it. Of course, you need yeah. a job, you have a job, you get some income, you can pay your bills, eat, live yeah. indoors. But like, why, why are jobs so important to you? Because um, when you grow up poor, when you grow up in, in flux, what you're craving for is um, knowing where your place in the world. And the fear is everything can be taken away from you. You know, you, somebody decides, you know, you didn't pay your rent, you have to move, you have to move. And you end up living in your car. You know, your, your families get separated because they don't have the resources to take care of each other. It, you know, communities fail. Entire towns disappear because of the lack of jobs. Yeah. Clearly my faith drives it. And, you know, my belief in, in that God planted in me this seed to work with communities, organizations, to create jobs, to change people's lives. That if we put, if people have good jobs that pay reasonable salaries, you know, within the U.S., healthcare benefits and a retirement program, that, that they'll take care of themselves, that they'll have money to contribute on Sunday to the church. They will volunteer for their children's soccer team. They will serve on boards. You know, we know the places that are affluent have less crime, have less domestic violence, have less of all of the negativity. And influence is created in only one way, and that's jobs. So, you know, I not only serve the community we're in, but we created an association that now has 300 communities from around the country who are actively participating in this journey so we can share our knowledge. We treat ourselves as a teaching hospital version of an economic development corporation. Everything Hmm. we know except somebody else's finances, we will share with anyone whether they perceive they're a competitor of ours or not, we are going to share it with them because in the end, all we care about is there's one less family that needs that box of food on, on Christmas. That's a powerful philosophy. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you're currently involved in, you know, your job as CEO? And, and I mean, again, there's so many associations and, uh, you know, initiatives and conferences and events that you're yeah. a part of. Just give us the 
the quick current bio yeah. rundown. So I, uh, I lead a group called Southwest Michigan First. We're a regional yeah. economic development corporation based in Kalamazoo, Michigan. We also lead um, a conference called Catalyst University um, that takes place in June, uh, June 20th this year. That's about three, not about 3,000, it is 3,000 people. Um, and that's because that's all we can get in the hockey um, facility and still be able to feed everybody. So, you know, you gotta, you gotta feed them. You can't get them to show up. And it really started out of this idea that, you know, my friends who are CEOs of big companies, they all have plenty of resources to take themselves for training, but the Mm. people, the next row down and the next level down, um, weren't getting the development they needed. And so, I uh, I had made I'd been speaking all over the country at events, and I got to meet people like our mutual friend Brad Lominick and and um, said you know what I can do a conference I've seen how they do this there's other than you know a little financial risk there's not much, it's not brain surgery so I went to my board and they I remembered it was yesterday they said we're this is with the board you. of Southwest Michigan yeah, first board yeah. of Southwest Michigan first and they said we're with you win or tie. So, (laughs) okay. (laughs) All right. I know what that means. And so we had 180 people the first year. The next year we were at 500 and then 600. And then we changed facilities and we're now in year nine and we're at 3,000. And um, we're so um, committed to it that one of the things we're working on is I'm cheering the effort to build a new arena. Um, so we can put 7,000 people in, not just for our event, but for all the other events too. But the only way I can grow ours is to, it's the old Zig Ziglar saying, have anything you want in this world. If you just help enough other people get what they want, well, I want to be able to serve 7,000 people in our community and leaders from all over the country. So the way to do that is to build a new arena and make sure everybody else gets to use it too. That's incredible. I mean, uh, you you shared that with me ahead of time before we started recording. And I'm like, what? Like you're at capacity and now you're like, well, I'll just build, you know, something twice the size yep. for, for the community. Where does this this drive come from? Uh, you know, I think it really comes from, so I spent the first 40 years of my life terrified that the people who knew me would find out that how poor I'd grown up and find out that, you know, I would, we would move and I'd have to, I'd scout out the grocery store because at that time, grocery stores all had Goodwill charitable boxes in the parking lots. And so I knew I could always get clothes there. So I would scout out where those were. And then my brother and I would go down and we'd climb inside of the boxes and find clothes. So we would have clothes to go to school in. And so I was terrified that people would find this out. And, um, and I had two incidents back-to-back over a, a two-week period, one of which is on a, a three-day um, retreat called the Walk to Emmaus, and it's a men's or women's retreat. And, um, and part of it, I, I had to break down and realize that what was keeping me from being closer to God and being authentic um, was this fear that my highlight reel, that if anybody found out who I was, you know, they would, I'd lose my job, I'd lose my friends, I'd lose my house, I'd lose everything, which is a silly fear in retrospect, but it was very real. And so once that happened, 
um, it was as if, and I began to tell people about how I grew up and the things about me and the things that I feared most. And what I found was my leadership began to accelerate and more Mm. opportunities came my way. And, you know, we went from having, I don't know, four or five team members to, you know, we're uh, over 35 now. And it, it just has built upon that and this authenticity. Um, And so, and it's just a drive. I want people, I, one of my oldest memories is of my mom sitting in an orange Formica table crying because she's going to write a check and she's either going to pay for her car to be fixed or pay the rent. And she can't pay for both. If she doesn't pay the rent, we get evicted. If she doesn't um, pay for the car, then we can't get groceries. She can't get to her job and, um, and crying about having to make that decision. And, uh, and I don't want, I I don't want, I go to bed at night worried about those little boys and girls watching their moms cry. And so we just got to do more to change the world, to, to make life better by giving people more opportunities. How did you come to peace with your story? Having lived in fear of it for four decades, what were some of the factors in the, cause obviously, you know, now yeah. you, you leverage that as a key strength. I mean, you opened with it's, it in this, this conversation. Yep. It is. Um, and it, you know, the weird thing I mentioned, there was two incidents, the walk to a mass, which was all about my faith. And, mm. and, and I, so from that day, so 15 years now, 14 years now, I've been wearing the same bracelet that I put on that day at the walk to Emmaus, a little uh, fishing swivel bracelet okay. that um, that I wear to remind me that this is my anti-fear amulet. This is reminds me that I'm enough. Um, but the other one was I sat in, I'd never been to a Broadway play before and I was in New York on business. And a friend had told me that the show Wicked was really good and it was just out. And so I went and sat in it and I got a ticket on the second row and cause you know, last minute seat and I go to sit there and the song defying gravity gets played and then they go to an intermission and I am ugly crying, not, Oh, we just had a baby. I'm weeping. Oh, somebody got married. <laughs> no, no, I'm ugly crying because I realized I'd spent my whole life believing I was inferior, believing mm-hmm. that there were some things wrong with me because of where I had come from and not realizing that that was the gift I had been given to make me strong, to fulfill my mission. And then the next week I'm on this walk to Emmaus and I I realized that um, God put me there and I was willing to, I was willing to lose it all if that's what it meant to be unique and authentic. And, uh, and what I found was, People, um, it, every time I speak to a group about my dyslexia, and I nearly didn't graduate from college because of my dyslexia, because it didn't get diagnosed until I was a senior in college. I just always struggled. But every time I speak to it, two or three people in the group will come up afterwards in tears because they are terrified to tell somebody. I speak to a lot of college groups and these young men and women will come up just in tears because no, they've never told anyone that they have the exact same thing I do. And they don't know where to turn for help. 
And I'm telling you, when you you know that because you have pastored people who can finally find somebody they can be safe and honest with, but that's it's life-giving to me to know that my story changes other people's lives. How did how do you or how did you lead before that sort of epiphany, that coming to terms, that that wrestling at around age 40? Like how did that transformation impact your style of leadership, your approach to leadership? How are you different today as a leader than you were 20 years ago? So um, my 20-year-ago person, it would, um, you know, I would quote Gordon Gecko: greed, for lack of a better word, is good. And, you know, I wore suits with suspenders, and I would model the worst behaviors that I would see because they looked like the people who are most successful. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you grow up, as I am, I'm blessed because my form of dyslexia um, is that I see all words as pictures. So, so I don't see, I can't sound out a word. I'll never, I can't read music. There's it's impossible because everything's a picture. So, but it means I see everything as patterns. So uh, if you would, everything I know is like on a giant Rolodex. So if you ask me something, it's how fast can I spin the Rolodex Hmm. to bring the answer? And so I would see these patterns and go, okay, if I want that, then I have to behave in this way. Well, I am a terrible copier. Um, hmm. our other, I know I'm name dropping here, but I just, um, I just had John Acuff on my own podcast. And John was, one of the things John was saying, I said, John, how come you're so authentic? And he said, because I'm a terrible John Maxwell. Because <laughs> when, I, when I try to fake somebody, and you just wrote a great, a blog about people who um, copy other people's sermons. And, you know, they don't mean malice by it. It's fear that drives that in a lot of people or ignorance or there's lots of reasons. But for me, I would copy people because I didn't know any other thing to do. And once I realized I'm not going to be ashamed of who I am, my own self came out and Mm. my own leadership and I began to say, how do I wish I was treated if people knew who I really was? And when you go, when that's your perspective, then all of a sudden you treat people differently. And, you know, our organizations on this journey, we were just named last year um, by uh, Outside Magazine as the best place to work in America. Yeah. Wall, Wall Street Journal named us to their top 30 places to work in America. It's been lots of those, but it's because everyone is authentic and vulnerable. And we all know, you know, the bad things about me, everybody knew already. I was the only one who wasn't acknowledging them. And once you get past that, the level of freedom to operate is just, it's amazing. That, that's incredible. And yet you had met with some measure of success I had. prior to that epiphany. I mean, it was a big growing company, uh, but you... I mean, even more so in the last, uh, you know, in the years since then. Yeah, I was negotiating billion-dollar deals. Um, I negotiated a multi-billion-dollar deal with the governor of or with the government of Venezuela, and Hugo Chavez was leading it, where on a big refinery expansion by them, and no, we're having great success. But I would go home completely um, defeated. 
you know, just exhausted. I, you know, there's not, I couldn't find joy anymore. And, um, because, because I, I knew I wasn't the original and, you know, nobody ever pays full face value for a fake, you know, you can go on the streets in New York and, you know, you can buy a Fendi purse for, you know, $8 or whatever, but you know, the original is going to cost you thousands. Nobody pays full price for a fake. And what we do is we devalue ourselves when we start because we know we're fakes. We know mm. that it's not authentic. And so the success you have feels like it's somebody else's success. Feels like wow. you didn't earn it. Was that a, a tough transition? I mean, I've, I've in a very different way had one of those catalytic moments when I was around 40 where, you know, I just kind of broke down, burned out and. Yep was a slow, well, multi-year reinvention, but as authentic as I could be. And that's it. I didn't want to go back to normal. I wanted to find a new normal that, and you know, I, I have the privilege of waking up and being who I am every day, which is, which is incredible and very liberating, but it took a while. How was that reconstruction process for you? And was it frightening? Uh, it was frightening in that the people who knew and loved you as you were go, hey, what's the matter? Why are we knowing you were you were this person? And we want you to do this. But as I began to be honest and and about who I was, you know, I uh, my weight had ballooned up. Um, I was you know four hundred and forty pounds. Wow. Um, I'm now, you know, I'm now down. Um, let's see how much of that, 165 of that, 170 of that I've lost it's incredible. over this, but because it was that being miserable, it was that burnout not feeling valued. So once I began this journey and it's an ongoing journey for all of us, because no matter how successful you are, you go, Oh, if I could just, if I could just do a stand up comedy routine, I could go be John Acuff. If I yeah. could just, you know, if I could just get a baritone voice, you know, I could be this incredible speaker. If I could just bounce on a trampoline for 12 hours, I could be Tony Robbins. Yeah. No, no, no. I got to be the best me. And when I do that, people flood into my life who, and you know, my, my latest book, Uniquely You, came out of this idea that every time I would talk about something that was, you know, uh, that I thought was this dysfunctional thing about me. We would get 50 or 60 emails or texts or people calling um, from the podcast or from a blog saying, hey, I have the same problem or what would you do in this environment? And I realized that, you know, maybe my job is it to be you know, the Tony Robbins or, you know, mm-hmm. Steve Jobs, maybe my job is to be the coach to the coaches. Maybe my job is just to lift up people who are going to do amazing things with their lives and to pour into them. And if it, it, it certainly serves my heart and soul. And if it lifts them up, wow, I don't, there's, I can't think of anything better that I want to do with my time in my life. Hmm. Well, um, there's a lot of places we could go in this conversation, (laughs) Ron, and we'll probably circle back to this a little bit later on. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about your companies and some of the things that you do. So I think it's Southwest Michigan First that has had compounded growth at 20% annually for about 14 years. Is that right? 
it is. Do you, do you want to talk us through that? Like that's pretty exceptional. Um, how did how did that happen? And describe exactly what you do as an economic engine for the region yeah. for the state. So we were founded to under the belief that the greatest force for change is a job, and to go make that happen. And mm-hmm. so we began as this traditional not-for-profit 501c3 charitable corporation that um, you could only do so much under those parameters. So we began to look and see how do we multiply our success? How do we bring in a model that we created we call community capitalism? So how do we bring in the, the business community with government and then with charity and church with the philanthropy side. How do we bring all of them together to say we all win if we create a better ecosystem? And um, and so we've been able to have tremendous success on the job creation side. But what we found is we simply couldn't do it with a tin cup do it as a charity. So hmm. we've so we've built businesses that then can support our charitable mission. And so we have for-profit investments. So, you know, one of uh, our, we have a cool investment called Impact Athletic. So on the sidelines of um, college football games in every National Hockey League um, locker room, the tables that the players are taped on and stretched on are ours. So we, oh, wow. um, so we own 40% of that company. And um, because a local entrepreneur brought the idea to us, we put together the investment group around it. And um, and now those tables are manufactured in Michigan and sent all over the world. And so we've invested in about 100 companies. Some of those we run ourselves. Consultant Connect is one where we have um, 300 economic development organizations in both Canada, Mexico, and the United States who we work with to help them grow their communities because we had all this knowledge. And frankly, uh, I'll be really honest, it came out of the Willow Creek model where I would see them with the Willow Creek Association pouring into other churches and pouring into them um, much the way, um, you know, Andy Stanley has done with you. And so we decided that's what we couldn't find good business models that served to grow communities. So we went and studied high growth churches all over America and said, how are you changing community? How are you build and however you define community? And, um, and what does that look like? And how do you, how do you convince your local folks? It's okay to share the knowledge you had. Cause even if it's God's work and God's money, people get parochial Mm -hmm. and, um, and so we were able to build a model out of that where we can just go serve and love communities. And, you know, and we amalgamate some fees around that. And we bring those dollars home to grow our own organization. So I just want to make sure I have this right. You Are you a little bit like a company that really exists to grow other companies? Like yeah, in the same yeah. way that the WCA has supported churches or a North yep. Point Network or... Yep. Uh, you know, different different churches, which is really innovative because you're right. Companies tend to be very territorial. 
It's almost yeah. like, is it a little bit like a corporate venture capital fund? It's like it you're, you're starting all these things left, right, and center. How many yep. jobs would you be responsible for creating to date? Do you know offhand? So um, my, over the course of my career, it's north of 50,000. Um, wow. in, in the last 10 years, we're at about 36,000. Um, 36,000 so, jobs. That's a lot yep. of jobs. Yeah. Wow. Plus, plus then all those created by the people that we're serving and, uh, and we should keep better track of their success too. Cause we just, we own just a little bit of that. We just want to pour into people and, and know that there's one less mom crying at that orange table tonight. Yeah. But again, those jobs spawn other jobs, which they spawn do. other jobs. Right. Yeah. And, and so on and so forth. Yep. Wow. Um, so how do you get 20% annual growth for 14 years then? So I, this is one of those things that people ask regularly. And the only thing I can say is we have a belief that every member of our team is the CEO of their own responsibility. So as, ah. the, point, as the point leader of the organization, I set my own schedule. You know, I have a board of directors, but they're, they're pretty hands off. And so I decide how resource is going to be spent. I decide how I'm going to take care of the clients I'm responsible for. I decide when I'm going to go on vacation. I decide when I'm coming to work and when I'm leaving work. And I want that for everyone. Hmm. I don't, I'm, a, I'm a terrible boss in that I don't ever want to fire anybody. So we hire amazing people, and the process is very long. It takes three or four months for us to select somebody and get them onto our team. But because of that, we almost never lose anybody. If we lose somebody, it's to go lead another organization. And as I tell people, I want to be quoted in the press release for your new job about how lucky they are to get you. But when you build an environment like that, then uh, people – you say you're responsible for you. You know what your outcomes are. We've committed to that. Now you lead in that level. So there is no bureaucracy. There is, you know, everyone has and knows that they have the exact same maximum on their credit card that I have on my credit card. They know that they have the keys to everything in the office. The only thing under lock and key they don't have access to is that our CFO and hmm and financial records there, but we, your first two weeks with us, you spend the first two weeks learning everything about the organization and you're handed a binder and a digital copy of everything that you need to know to run the organization by yourself. As we say, if we all go out to lunch, except you and get food poisoning, we want to make sure you can run the entire business till we're back. And really, when you do that, when you train for that and you invest to people at that level, the the our cap on growth, we haven't found it yet. We just, people are designing, they're treating it like their own business and they're designing greatness around that. So, so play that out. I mean, obviously there are tiers in any organization. So are you saying, this is a little bit like horse Schultze, I guess, and, and the Ritz-Carlton where it's ladies and gentlemen and everyone has a sphere of authority. But how does that play out in your company then to the point where somebody who would have an entry level position, let's say a clerical position, y'all get food poisoning, they can run the company? Like how, yep. how, how does that work? They can run the entire company. So other than, other than writing checks, but they could put everything on a credit right. card if they had to. 
um, they could run the whole company. And it came from my time of living on the Texas Gulf Coast where you have to worry about hurricanes. So my yeah. thought was, well, what if a hurricane came and we all were spread out? We still have things we have to be responsible for. How do we do that? And so we kind of developed from there. But what I found was if if you hire amazing people who want to run, they won't stay around if you have a lot of bureaucracy. I'll be back with more of my interview with Ron Kitchens in just a moment. But hey, I want you, if you live in the cities of Seattle, Phoenix, Kansas City, or Austin, to know that Andy Stanley is coming to your town this fall for the Irresistible Tour. And he is going to pick up where the book left off. He's excited about being in those cities. And my friend Reggie Joyner hosts the Irresistible Tour. Andy delivers the content, Reggie hosts it. And I sat down with Reggie and I said, hey, Reg, you know, you and Andy have worked together for 25 years, starting North Point Church together. And North Point's all about reaching unchurched people, but clearly so much has changed. How have things changed over the last 25 years? Well, the six of us who kind of started North Point started because we really cared about people who didn't go to church. We, we didn't start North Point to reach people who were already attending. We started it to reach people who weren't. And somewhere in those early days, you know, Andy introduced this idea, this church will never be about who we can keep, it'll be about who we can reach. And so we don't want to keep people for the sake of keeping people if it means we're not going to reach people we need to reach. And so we've discovered through the years, and this is what Andy is just genius about, we've discovered through the years as culture shifts, as it changes, we have to shift our approach and change how we do what we do. What worked 25 years ago or 20 years ago or 15 years ago it doesn't work today. One of the things Andy brings out in the irresistible day is how social media has profoundly affected how kids and teenagers and this generation processes truth and information. And if we can't get louder and stronger and smarter in what we say and how we say it, you know, we're going to lose a generation to ideology and things that aren't complete in their thinking because we're not in that in the middle of that conversation, having a better conversation to help them understand who God is. And so this one day really challenges all of us um, to rethink how we do church, how we do our programming, how we do our communication and our language so that we can honestly make sure the main thing is the main thing. Somewhere through the years, it's easy to shift away from what it really means to be a follower of Jesus and what the primary thing is that distinctively makes us Christian. And he brings that back to the forefront in a way that I think is very, very powerful and very effective if churches would apply it. Well, if you, like me, are interested in reaching unchurched people and you're wondering why so many of the current approaches don't work anymore, you don't want to miss the Orange Tour. It's coming to Seattle, Phoenix, Kansas City, and Austin. And if you register right now at irresistibletour.com, use the coupon code CARRY19. Carry, it sounds like a sitcom, doesn't it? Anyway, no, that's Brooklyn 99. Anyway, CARRY19, CARRY19. Uh, you'll get $20 off the regular price, and that's for everybody who attends. So go to irresistibletour.com, use the coupon code CARRY19, and you'll get $20 off the regular price. It's going to be a really exciting time in Phoenix, Seattle, Kansas City, and Austin this fall. So without further ado, back to my conversation with Ron Kitchens. So we're very clear. We sit down. Every team member begins the year with a plan of work for the year. They then sit with, and then there, the commitment is, we'll give you the resources to do this and be successful. This is your 
piece of a business, your service to do. And we'll give you those resources. You then meet with your mentor partner. We don't have supervisors. We don't have bosses. We have mentors. You meet with that person every 40 days. 40 days for us is very important. You you know, you can go through the Bible, you can go through history. Mm. There's something really special about 40 days. And for a business standpoint, meeting every month is too soon and you have these weird holiday cycles. 40 days works brilliantly. And you sit down and you talk about where you are, what are the resources you need, what support do you need? And uh, and then you give them freedom to go succeed. And uh, and we we just don't have people who fail. They hmm. because we hire the right people, and they understand what their responsibilities are, and then they can they run like champions. So this is probably a separate podcast in and of itself. But what are some of the characteristics you look for? I mean, it's a three or four month hiring process, yeah. so we can't can't go into all of it. But like maybe even by negative, what are some deal killers? It's like, yeah, this person's not on the team or what are some must-have yeah. qualities and characteristics of somebody you would hire? So um, deal killers are almost always behavioral. So a resume is a resume. We're going we're gonna to check and make sure you, right. you'll look like you're okay. Um, but it really is the behavior. So um, in the process, you're going to interview eventually with every member of the team. Some of them are just going to be, we're going to go to coffee together. Um, but you're going to go have a meal, and we're going to make sure your meal gets screwed up. There's going to be a mistake on it. And we and it's going to be a big mistake. You're going to order chicken, and they're going to give you steak. You're going to order milk, and they're going to bring you a glass of wine. And yeah. Because we want to see how do you deal with that. Do you belittle the person? Do you roll with the punches? Do Is it completely throw you off? Um, and so we want to see those behaviors. We're going to ask you questions like, what's your favorite sushi? Now, we don't really care what your favorite sushi is, but if your answer is, oh, I'd never eat raw fish, then you're somebody who won't try new things and you're not willing to explore. So you're not going to be very comfortable with us. It's um, other than me, our management team is all women. And they're all, and they range from, uh, let's see, 28 to 60. And mm. so they're very diverse. And um, they if you're a man joining an organization, a lot of men, particularly mid-career men, have never worked for a woman or been in a peer relationship in a professional uh, level with the woman. And so we're going to put you um, – you know, doing an interview with two really kind of young women who you're not going to know what their role is. And uh, and we want to see how that interview goes. Do you treat them with respect? Do you ask interesting questions? Are you patronizing? Are you, you know, do you have, you know, behaviors that are less than respectful of them? And if you can't do that, then you don't fit with us. And, but then it's also, we're using a there's a, a group um, called Talent Plus. They're out of Nebraska mm -hmm. that measures um, intensity. Everybody, um, you know, we use the a horse metaphor. You know, there are four kinds of horses, show horses and race horses and quarter horses and plow horses. They all have important roles. But if you put a race horse in a field to plow, it'll never be successful. It can't do it. 
But And if you put that plow horse in the Kentucky Derby, it's not even going to leave the gate. <laughs> so you got to make sure all the horses are the same kind of horses for the jobs that need to get done. And so by going through that and, um, and making sure that people um, are highly engaged, then we also are going to challenge people to be entrepreneurial. We're going to say, if you could create a new, it doesn't have to be a for-profit business. If you could solve a problem, how would you build around solving that problem? And that you don't have to understand, you know, we had, we had a young woman in um, who we hired this week, who, uh, brilliant, great grades, all of that came to us and said, I hear that if I come to work here, um, I can be the CEO of my own responsibilities. I said, yes, yeah, you can. We talked about that was, and I said, well, what's your passion? And she said, I am, I want to change the lives of the homeless by creating um, dignity in how we do charity with them. Well, I said, well, that's not something we do. She said, I know, but I'll learn the other things from you that takes to do that, to change the world. And then I can build um, either my personal charitable giving or build a new organization around that. Why wouldn't we take that person who mm. wants to change the world and wants to do the work to do it? And so it, um, which, which I don't know if that's why we went from, we're in an industry dominated by men. Average organization looks like me. It's a bunch of 50-year-old white guys. And, yeah. um, and that's not who we are. We're um, dominated. Two-thirds of our team are women. Um, women manage every area of the organization. And, um, and the folks that we're getting to us are people that I never thought we would stand a chance at recruiting, but they want to be part of something that's bigger than just profit or bigger than just um, uh, another charity. The Even the senior management team being all female, was that intentional or those mm. just happened to be the people who had the qualities and characteristics you most rewarded? Um, those are the people who uh, were the most amazing. So <laughs> I had, okay. a, and I looked back 10 years ago, my top two people were both men um, who one of them I had grown up with, known from junior high school, and the other one had been with me 15 years, and um, both got to the point that they could not deal in a world with strong, amazing women who were their peers. Oh, they wow. were fine as long as the women were um, in roles beneath them, but when they became their equals, still talked to them as if they were girls, still didn't value wow. them. And so I, I had to ask both of them to leave the organization. And and just which made it really clear to the women who were there that I got you. I all we care about is talented, amazing people. Hmm. And um and gender doesn't matter, ethnicity doesn't matter. It is about being amazing. And when you do that and you become blind to the other stuff, you're gonna thrive. Isn't that fascinating? No. Um, so a couple of other questions on, on the hiring process. You said that uh, every candidate interviews with everyone. Does that mean everyone, everyone. in the organization? How many everyone. people do you have on staff? So that's, that like, that's that like 35 interviews now. Gotcha. So you're yeah. going to do part of those um, 
at group meals. You're going to do part of them around right. the coffee. Uh, you said you're going to do a lot of some one-on-ones, particularly where we want you to ask questions. So if you're not coming in lots of questions, um, you probably, you know, then we're just another job and, uh, and we don't want to be that. We, we're, we're changing the world. Just because I'm curious, you're not the first person to tell me that as a hiring practice, you know, they'll take someone out to dinner and intentionally throw the meal off. So yep. I'm thinking about how I would respond. So you have the person who's surly to the server. Yep. Then you have the person who eats it and doesn't say yep. a word. And maybe you've got somebody who like politely says, actually, I ordered the chicken or yep. maybe there are other scenarios. Can you walk us through what you're looking for in those scenarios to the different responses and what that tells you? I'm just curious. Yeah. So if, if you're somebody who throws a fit, you're done. Yeah, we'll done. We'll, fi- we'll finish the meal, but you're clearly, it's you're done. And, yeah. um, and if you're someone who just eats it, then I'm going to, we're going to talk about that as a follow up later and say, Hey, I noticed that, um, you know, they served you steak instead of chicken. How come you didn't say something? Most of the successful candidates will say, you know, it just didn't really matter. I wasn't there for the meal. I was there to talk with you all and with the group. And to tell you the truth, I wouldn't, didn't even really remember what I'd ordered. It just didn't <laughs> matter. I've been there for the purpose which is a great answer because that's what you want. Somebody who goes, yeah, no, this is a business deal. Um, the person who says, you know, hey, actually, um, we're just wanting to see how assertive will you be and how gracious you will be. Because the waitress is going to apologize profusely for that. And if you're gracious to them and if you make them feel comfortable in that, that's the home run. Because you're going to, as you know, it's, when you're a point leader, when you're any kind of leader, mistakes are going to happen. It's what grace can you give in that? It's not enough to just say, oh, don't worry about it. The person goes home and worries about it, and they fret, and your relationship is damaged. But if you can say, you know what, I did the exact same thing one time, or, you know, you're being working so hard today. If you just make people give some kindness and grace if you can get higher people who will extend that in a and they go from being uh the center of the of the meal to making someone else the center of the meal that's the kind of level 5 leader that we're looking for oh that's really cool what what would you do would you just eat it or would you uh, graciously point out that you ordered the chicken um i would probably um eat just eat it would <laughs> so you really? Just, okay. Because I, I, you know, the because the truth of the matter is in those things, I don't really pay much attention to what I order. So I would be scared. <laughs> I would be, unless it was something that I really knew that's what I wanted, I'd worry a bit because I do that with my wife regularly. So the meal will show up and go, well, I thought I ordered so-and-so. She go, no, no, no. This is exactly what you ordered. <laughs> so, yeah, I know exactly what I ordered. I would send it back and hopefully on a good day, I'd do it graciously. Uh, oh, it's funny. That's, that's so curious to see different people. I know people who take people out golfing and, you yep. know, they watch how they respond to bad shots or are they keeping score? All those things. But I think those real life situations tell you far more than any interview ever would. Oh, absolutely. You know? 
Any other keys to becoming, uh, you know, what the Wall Street Journal and various organizations have recognized as one of the best workplaces in America? I think you've given us a lot. I'm just, I want to go deeper in that mind if we can. I think this communications and, um, uh, you know, I, uh, uh, we use an analogy a lot that, um, that I got from Bill Hybels. And that was that, you know, communications is a big rubber bucket and that is always expanding as you pour water in more communications in, but it's also leaking all of the mm. time. So you have to pour more and more in. And when we get busy as leaders, we forget that. We forget, I, you know, I, I can get into that mode pretty easy of, well, I'm working 60 hours a week on this. How do you all not know that this yes. is what I'm doing? And, and how do you not know this is what's important to me? Well, because I didn't tell anybody. So for us, we meet every morning at 8.05. Everybody in the organization who's in town is standing in a circle at 8.05. Uh, which we got from Horace Schultze. So I, I mm-hmm. 15 years ago, I had the opportunity to have lunch with Horace Schultze. And, um, and he was telling me about... Founder their, of the Ritz-Carlton. Yeah, founder of the Ritz-Carlton. Yeah. Was telling me about that. And I, that was one of those that I said, well, that's what I want. If that's what the best does, how do we emulate that in our own way? So every morning we meet at 8.05. We have a rhythm. So everyone on the team shares their calendars for the week of the things that are important that somebody else might be able to help them with or that somebody may need to know about. So you may say, Jill may say, hey, I'm going to meet with this company on Tuesday. And somebody else says, hey, if while you're out there, could you ask this question for me? I've been trying to get it. I can't get the answer. Or, hey, heads up, they were upset about this. You need to know what you're walking into. So we're sharing that on Mondays. On Tuesdays is a vision cast, so a different leader from management. If I'm in town, it's me. And we talk about where we are as an organization. What's going on? What are the scary things? What are the things that, you know, people are wondering about? Let's talk about things that are real, not some sales rah-rah job. Sometimes it's yeah. motivational. But this is real. Here's what's going on. Um, and then throughout the rest of the week, there's another rhythm to it. But 8.05, don't call our office. Takes between 10 or 15 minutes. But everybody shares that and communicates. Thursdays is always about something about you personally. So today, uh, this Thursday, is what's your um, favorite uh, cartoon character growing up and why? Ah, you know, it's mine was Foghorn Leghorn, but you know, but everybody, oh, yeah, 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 I liked him. yeah it's, everybody shares that. And why? Because it's hard to be mad at somebody when you know you share the same uh, cartoon character, you know, when it's hard to not work together. And it's the same reason that we, you know, there's seems these days there's a baby in our office you know, every other day. And I have a new puppy that's coming to the office on Friday that everybody's very excited about. (laughs) And so, you know, we do life together and that becomes communications. And that's critical. If you want to be great, you got to be willing to be vulnerable and, um, and pull back this, uh, the ignorance. Ignorance is our enemy. Yeah. You know, and I, I find that to be very true that you almost cannot over communicate 
And I think, it, you know, you think about scale, so you have 30-ish team members, 35 team yeah. members, so you can imagine everybody in a circle. But I think it is, and I could be wrong, General Stanley McChrystal did that when he was in command of the U.S. forces yeah. and involved hundreds of people on a virtual huddle. Um, so it does scale. Now, obviously, you can't have 500 people or 5,000 people talking, but you can have key players uh, bringing in sort of daily command or daily issues and, and that kind of thing. That's great. Anything else on like workplace culture that everyone should should think about? Yeah, and I think the one of my favorite things is about leaving loudly. So again, it goes back to this CEO thing. Everybody's the CEO of their own responsibilities, which means I can go to the gym anytime I want. Yeah, I can grab my yeah. bag, go out the door, and people might roll their eyes, but well, he's the boss. Well, I have to say, I'm going to the gym. Everybody has to know that and know I expect them to do the same thing. But if they see me never do it, then they'll quit doing it themselves. So, right. you know, so, and, um, and we have a model that actually came from Andy Stanley um, about family first. You know, Andy called it choosing to cheat. When he first yeah. came in, we have a rule. One of our rules is we don't cheat at anything. So I can't use that. So, it's, <laughs> so it's, I think he retitled the book. It, too. He, did, yeah. he did, but it, um, but ours is family first. And so there's only two real ways you're going to get me so angry. I can't speak to you. And one is if I find out you victimize somebody else. I have no tolerance uh, for that. I don't care if they're, they're theoretically a, a enemy. We don't have enemies, but if somebody we're competing against, we're just competing against them. Then they're on our enemies. We don't run up the score. We don't victimize right. people. We don't do that. And the other one is if you don't take care of your family. If I find out your kid has got a spelling bee at school, you need to be there. And we have a we have enough people on our team. Everybody's cross trained. We got your back. So the only reason you wouldn't go is because you don't trust us. And so you need to trust us as a team to make sure your family is taken care of. And and that means, you know, going to those spelling bees, going to your kids' track meet. If you have a sick child at home, stay at home. You don't have to come to work. You have a laptop. You have an iPad. You have a smartphone. All of our communications is online available to you stay at home and take care of your family you're the only one who can do that role we have other people that can take care of this stuff in the office and when people when we recruit new team members it's funny they all that we tell them all about that and after about three months that's the thing people come back and say you know i didn't really think that was real i didn't really Hmm. think i could leave and go with my mom to her doctor's appointment um, and that people would celebrate that. But we ask people to celebrate. If you're going to be out of the office taking care of your family, doing something cool with them, whatever it is, tell us on Monday so we can all celebrate it. Do it loudly. So, And as a point leader, you have to do it loudly or no one else will believe um, that they have permission to do it. Isn't that fascinating, you know, as a cultural architect, and I think that's what you are as a senior leader. I mean, I've always defaulted more toward what you're describing and probably not nearly as well, but I've always craved that kind of freedom as a leader. And so I've tried to create that kind of freedom for the team. Um, But I know that most culture is not there, which is probably why 70% of Americans hate their jobs. 
What would you say, because you get this question all the time, I'm sure, Ron, but you get from people like, oh, that's great, Ron. That's a nice theory. But what about the person who always has a sick child? What about the person who, you know, is always at the gym or decides like Netflix has the take as many holidays as you want policy? What about the person who's on vacation every month? Like, what do you what do you say to somebody who raises those objections? So when we part of our hiring process is we explain this and that people know that we have it and this is what we live by, but they also know that we have very high expectations and you've made a commitment. Here's what you're going to get done in the next, in this year, in the next 40 days. And, um, and everyone's commitment is also up on the scoreboard. So ah. it would say Carrie is going to make this many visits. It's going to uh, teach this many leadership classes. It's going to do these things this year. And here's the running score of where Carrie is. Uh-huh. And uh, so everybody knows how everybody else is doing against their goals and expectations. So in all of the years of doing this and all the team members ranging from team members in their 70s to team members right out of college, we've only had one case where um, it somebody took advantage of it. And as I'm reminded regularly, it was the one case that I didn't go by the hiring system. And it was somebody that I thought, oh, they're great. I, I hired all you people. I know what I'm doing. I'm just going to hire that person. And they remind me, oh. that's the only problem we ever had. So I, so I go last. I don't meet any candidate till everybody has vetted them. And uh, until I have, you know, and, and part of our vetting is, and it came out of my, my church experience that our church, the tradition is when a child's baptized, everyone in the church stands and makes a commitment to support the family and the child on their journey um, in Christianity. So we ask that when people interview, that you send me a note that says yes or no. If it's no, then we need to talk about that one-on-one. But if it's yes, you add, yes, I believe this person will be successful. And I know that their success or failure is a direct reflection on me. So I'm at, uh, on you as the person that you're empowered to make them successful. So when you live in that environment of mutual accountability and mutual commitment, you just don't have this uh, abusive behavior that you worry about. So high expectations, high freedom, and high accountability. There you go. They all go together. There you go. Yep. Yep. And you probably already vetted for the toxic personalities and the non-self-starters and the lack of initiative, all those things. It's really good. Now, you've just hinted at this multiple times. You've referenced, hey, I learned this from Andy Stanley. Hey, I learned this from my church. Hey, what do you think business leaders, because you you go to church, but you're not in the church world. What do you think business leaders can learn from church leaders? Um, So for me, I think they're uh, we're, it's a changing model. Um, I was just, I'm on, uh, I was on a plane today and I was reading um, Harvard Business Review, a story in there. The story was about this idea that um, no longer are people, no, people aren't willing, next generation leaders aren't willing to go work for a company that isn't values and mission driven. But now as yeah. consumers, we're not willing to do business with groups that aren't mission and, and values driven. See, that's and, true. 
And so you begin to say, okay, if I'm a traditional business, you know, a Gordon Gecko, you know, greed, for lack of a better word, is good business, how do, who do I model the new world around? And so as I, as I mentioned, we looked and looked to say, okay, um, what groups are out there? And this was pre kind of Tom Shoes or Warby Parker. Yeah, Warby Parker, yeah. Yeah, it was pre them. And uh, we began to look and see who can we emulate who is service-oriented, who wants to change people's lives, who um, is using the best technologies and doing it smart, and they're smart with money, how they're doing it. They understand cultural change and cultural relevancy. They're serving wide range of people. And it wasn't business that was doing that. It wasn't government doing that. It was high-growth churches that were doing that. Fascinating. So we went around the country over about a three-year period, and I don't know, we got up to 28 or 29 um, churches and went and saw them. And, you know, we went to see Craig Groeschel's group and talk about how, uh, you know, it was great that you did a digital Bible, but you did a digital Bible that's an app. And you change the way a lot of people across the world have access to the Word of God and study groups and all that. Well, that's the most business structure way you do that because they were using these business platform that was created, but modeling it in a way that had never been done before. And Hmm. when you look at what Willow Creek Association has was able to do in leadership conferences. We look at the best leadership training in the world. It's being done um, in church world. It's and then, then it's being transitioned into business world. But you know, my business friends um, are attending church conferences, and in some cases, they may not know a single one of the speakers who are there because they're coming out of church world, but they're looking for values-based leaders. And they're looking to transition how they serve people and meet them. And frankly, churches are changing faster than the marketplace. Businesses will change because churches are looking at trends constantly and Mm -hmm. going, hey, you know, people aren't really – you know, the, the the great light show and the loud music, they're only really wanting that once a month. They're wanting, you know, an acoustic set. And they're, you know, I, I grew up with where you wear a suit and tie to church and it still drives me crazy to wear jeans to church. Yeah. I just feel underdressed. But the um, but business is just catching up. Business was 10 years behind church world in letting people dress comfortable and even their customers to be comfortable so that you can have a meaningful interaction. And so I'm, I'm a huge fan. If I, if I could only study and learn from one type of leader, it would be, um, it would be church leaders. I don't think I've ever heard a business leader say that. But it's fascinating. You know, I I got a bunch of leaders. I got another phone call tomorrow, business leaders who are like, hey, can we get into this church leader thing that you're doing in Atlanta? I'm like, sure. All right, we'll let you in. We'll set up a table for you. But I wonder if there's a lot of cross-pollination. And that's interesting for me to think about. My bias is that the church is a decade behind the marketplace, but maybe 20 years. But I think you're right. The innovative churches 
may actually be on the cusp of something, whereas the church as a whole maybe lags a little behind, but I think there's, there's, there are great seeds of innovation. The other thing that's really interesting about leading a church is culture is your currency because yep. you're dealing mostly with a volunteer workforce. I mean, you're not, you're not winning them with a paycheck and donuts eventually wear off and they're not good for you anyway. Huh. So, I mean, you, you really, you're trying to convince people who are already busy, who are working a full-time day job that we want you to come here sometimes twice a week. We want you to give sacrificially of the money that God has given you. And we want you to serve and invite your friends. That done well is a high demand on leadership. Any thoughts but, on that? But think about it this way. At a time where in, in the United States, we're at full employment. So right. every year, so we have, you know, we're in the 3% unemployment rate. So that's the same as recruiting volunteers. People go, yes, you're I, can, right. I can go anywhere tomorrow and get a job, at, you know, essentially at the exact same pay or better. So why am I going to stay here? It's the culture piece and it's the values. And so when a, you know, when an organization, whether it be in the church, the not-for-profit world or for-profit world, when you lose your moral high ground, there isn't any culture that will save you. But if you have a strong, great culture, then there isn't any marketplace forces that can stop you. You know, we've seen it in church world. You see it, you know, the church on the edge of town begins to grow and do great things. And, you know, people will go, well, it's because they got a new building and they got a new this and they got a new that. No, they drove by, the people drove by 20 churches to get there. People are coming because of the values and the connectivity and the community that's created. And, um, and I will tell you, uh, if we take online communities out of that, I know no other institutions in our country that are creating um, mission-based communities at scale other than churches. And it's a brand, it's a brand new way of doing it. You know, because I would say I grew up, you know, in church, traditional Southern Baptist, everybody wore a tie, you know, and you went to church on Sunday night and Wednesdays. But the sense of community didn't particularly carry um, the way it does today. If you go to the parking lot at my office where we share a building with several other companies, um, I can tell you what church most people go to because there's a sticker in the window. In a lot of cases, it's small. It's just a symbol that says, I'm part of this tribe. I'm part of this community. That, That just didn't happen a generation ago. That it is it the the church is doing amazing things around that, and um, you know I think you know if we're in charity world, you know charity water is doing Scott is doing yeah, incredible things around um this community, but scaling um they can only do so much, and so mm. it's the local church that continues to scale great leaders, and I think um. I think the local church is the only real hope I have right now um, of turning America around. I think this civility issue we have and this distrust of each other 
Um, you know, I don't want to, I guess this podcast is safe to say, but it you know, sure if, if people don't get closer to God and come around those teachings of saying, you know, you may be different, but we can sit at the well together and, um, and share a story and drink out of the same pitcher. Um, if we can't do that, I don't know how we do the hard things. And so other than the church, I don't know who's going to do that for us. And I just want to echo what you say. That's the little space I'm trying to create on the internet and with this podcast. And Scott Sauls has been a repeated guest and I've had others who just talk about how do we, how do we disagree without being disagreeable? How, how can we regain civility in our discourse? And I think the gospel is the thing that would cause us to behave in a better way. And unfortunately, sometimes it's uh, Christians who can be pretty harsh with each other too. You've yeah. got a brand new book, Uniquely You. So I want you to tell us, like, what, what made you want to write the book? Does it flow out of your story? It's not it, released it as we're talking about it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, this is out. like that, yeah. that big epiphany that yeah. we talked about. It is. It's that, uh, it's this idea that I get all, I get, we get between 50 and 60 emails, texts, calls, a week from our podcast and and the blogs all asking the kind of same question of, you know, it's the young woman who just graduated from college. She's two years into her career and she's being treated terrible and she doesn't know what to do and doesn't know how to lead. And what do I do? It's the 30 year old guy who's just had his second kid who says, you know, I don't want my dad's life. I don't want to work 80 hours a week and miss everything. How do I lead there? It's the 50-year-old guy who says, I, you know, I'm leading these two kids. I don't know what to do. And so it's, you know, it comes out of the story of just be you. You are uniquely created by God to have your own stories and deliver on them. Quit trying to be the best John Maxwell. You know, he's awesome. You can't be better than him at being him, but you can be the best Kerry Newhoff. You can be the best John Acuff. You can be the best who you are, and that's what people buy. You know, you go to Spotify, There's you can download all these great artists' music, but there's no, there's no section for knockoff artists, people who kind of sound like Garth Brooks singing his songs, but not really him. Nobody's listening to that guy. Yeah. So how are, if you want to have impact and influence, just be you. So we tell stories, give examples about how being amazing you can change your organization. And whether that's your family, your church, or your not-for-profit or your business. And, uh, and how, you know, hopefully um, in the end, you know, people find grace for themselves. You talk about um, the deal you were doing, you know, multi-billion dollar deal and being exhausted at the end of the day. And you look at yourself today where you've really come to terms with your story, your background, gotten over imposter syndrome or whatever else yep. you, you were struggling with. What is your energy like today compared to uh, how it was before? Oh, uh, yeah. It's, um, so I, uh, I'm when I love sunrises and I get to see them a lot. Mm. And I hate sunsets because I have so much more I want to get done in the day. Yeah, and and so I go to bed tired, but I go to bed saying, bring tomorrow on, let's go. And, you know, where I'm, I, I almost never have a bad day. And wow. it's because I, um, 
when I do something, I know, you know, and I have to do things that I don't like. Everybody has to take the trash out. Mm-hmm. But I, um, I'm not pretending that I'm not taking the trash out. I'm not pretending that I'm um, something I'm not. You're going to know me warts and all. And, um, and I'm going to be very open. You know, one of the things we do every year is we throw, I live on a, yeah, I have a great house, not a good house. I have a great house on an inland lake and it is a wonderful place to throw parties. And so I used to worry that people would find out I had this great house and that they would judge me. And, you know, how could, you know, it's like the minister who drives a car that's too nice you know, or those things. And so I worry about it. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to invite everybody to my house. So we invite all our contributors. We invite all our clients. We, and I throw parties all summer long at my house. And I want you to know where my house is. And I want you to hang out with us because I don't ever want you to judge me by something that's not true. It's okay if you don't like what color I painted my office at home, but I want you to go look and people regularly We'll throw a party, and I'll find them in my home office looking for that can of oranges. And they're always surprised mm. there's a can in the drawer. And uh, But, you know, I just – give yourself grace to be amazing and not try to feel bad because you're not the best somebody else. That's not who God made you to be. Oh, uh, that's really good. Um, Ron, man, time flew. Um, any, anything else you want to share before we wrap up today? Yeah, I think the one thing is, you know, that I share with groups when I speak and talk about a lot is what we call the Olivia Pope rule. Olivia Pope was the lead character on the TV show Scandal. And in in the early seasons of that show, it always began with her and the client. And she would say, what do you want? What do you want? And no one could ever answer the question. Hmm. So I thought, well, I'm going to start asking that question. We have the same exact response. People who are unhappy or feeling unvalued, who are feeling inadequate, they're feeling like fakes, are people who can't define what they want. So what what success look like for you? What, do you? what are those things that are important that you want out of your life? Because if you don't know that, then every day feels inadequate. But if you mm. know what you want and you're working towards that, every day feels like an acceleration towards your goals and your best life. So I challenge people to Spend really quiet time. Find wherever that space is for you. For me, it's sitting on the floor in front of our fireplace with my puppy and uh, and spend some time thinking about what I want and then writing it down. And I have it on my dresser mirror and I have it on my mirror in the bathroom to say, here's what I want, you know. Hmm. And, you know, for me, one of the things is on Tuesdays, I want to be grateful and I want to pray for everybody on my team. So it's up there to remind me that I want that grace for myself. And the best way I can get it is to be really structured about my prayer on Tuesdays. And because then I go into the office and I lead them in a much different way than I would if I didn't do that. Do you have a different thing you want for every day of the week? Um, I have a different area that I focus on for day of the week, but, um, you know, so it isn't about just I want a, this car and I want a, that thing and I want a, this. So, okay, some of that. I mean, early in my life, and I share it in the book, 
Lynn and I, one of our goals was we wanted to be able to buy more than one week's toilet paper at a time. We were so broke, we couldn't buy more than one week's toilet paper. And if we had people over at our house, we would have to slow down our own use. Throughout <laughs> Don't use week. too much. Don't use too much. You know, maybe you should go before you need to use the restroom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So okay. it changes in your life, but simply by knowing what you want is how you can give yourself um, grace and permission to be authentic and to be unique. Wow. Ron, this is so rich. The book is called Uniquely You. And if people want to connect with you, where can they do so online? Oh, the easy place is just ronkitchens.com or at ronkitchens. I guess at um, at, uh, Instagram, I was slow. So it's ron.kitchens. Somebody beat Uh me to it. Yeah, yeah, everything else is just ronkitchens. That's the best. Ron, congratulations on the book. I'm just so excited to see the difference you're making in the world too. And it's a thrill to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And I really appreciate you. Well, that's a powerful, powerful interview. And if you want some more, you can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 273, where we have show notes, transcripts, and so much more. And I'll tell you, that was really challenging for me as well. Hey, Next week, we're back with a fresh episode. I talked to ideation founder Charles Lee from Silicon Valley. And, uh, well, here's an excerpt from that interview. And what I had realized, uh, kind of a big tech takeaway through that time, was I had confused competency with calling. Hmm. And um, I think I was, I was good at a lot of different things. But my, what my therapist, uh, what she walked me through was like, what are you kind of best in your world at? And I realized it was like really executing and scaling ideas. And uh, even while juggling 10 different things, I realized that's one thing I, I did really well. And I took that for granted. And as you know, Carrie, sometimes our greatest strengths are you know, kind of in our blind spots because we assume everybody else knows how to do it. Uh, and then I realized, man, no, that's a unique, I think, gifting that God has given me. And so that's where the idea of ideation came from was like, how do we, how do I help others really not take their ideas to the grave, but help them really scale those concepts? Uh, Because I had a knack for how to do that. And that's where ideation came from. So that's next episode, which is in July. Can you believe it's almost July already? (laughs) It's insane. And uh, if you subscribe, you get it for free. So if you're on your summer holidays and you're like, oh man, I missed that one. No, you won't. Not if you subscribe. Wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever. We're there. And uh, if this episode has meant something to you, please share. Please leave a rating and review. We are closing in on 9 million downloads. And uh, the reason is because you are so generous in sharing. And I want to thank you so much. We really do hope this helps you. And uh, remember, if you haven't yet tried out Trained Up for free, you can do that at servehq.church. And we got two really exciting events coming to a city near you this fall. Orange Tour is in 15 cities this fall. You can go to orangetour.org. Use the code Carry. And you'll get some money off the regular price. And then the Irresistible Tour with Andy Stanley is coming to Phoenix, Seattle, Kansas City, and Austin. And if you go to irresistibletour.com, use the coupon code CARRY19, you also can get a discount for everybody who attends. So we are back next week. I'm so excited for that. Thanks so much for listening, guys. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. 
You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.